Will Bertie's cousins pull off their scheme of rigging a betting pool for lengthy country sermons? Well, what could go wrong? P.G. Woodhouse, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. Thank you so very much to all of you who have gone to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become financial supporters. There are several options to support the podcast, starting at $5 a month. Each of your offers of support comes with a monthly thank you code. Use the codes for any audiobook download and watch your library of classics bloom and grow. Everybody wins, and we get to keep the podcast going strong. Thanks again for your generous support. We also have several other ways to support the podcast. If you're a business owner, and you would like me to develop a podcast for your business, please send me an email at bj at thebestaudiobooks.com. You can also purchase T-shirts, tote bags, and other merchandise with your favorite Classic Tales covers on them at our merchandise store. And finally, we have the Hybrid Audiobook, a creation of my own invention, where an audiobook is embedded within the pages of a printed book. Links can be found in the description for this episode. Now for our personal moment. Well, I couldn't be prouder of Seven. He is Menenius in Coriolanus, which opened tonight at Timfew High School in Provo, Utah. And whenever he's in shows, we go to every single show. Uh, at least Scylla and I do. So these are our favorite weekends of, like, our our lives, is when we can go and see our little ones up on stage. Of course, he's 19. He's a senior this year. So this is our last one for Seven. And it's kind of sad. It's really quite sad. We did the sets for it. Uh, it looks great. We marbled the whole set. I'll probably put a picture on Facebook so you can take a look at them. And so that's our that's the big thing we'll be doing this weekend. So we're really excited to see it four more times. Seriously, I want to see it every night of my life. I just love it. So does Scylla. And that is our personal moment for the week. <laughs> Thanks. And now, The Inimitable Jeeves, Part 6 of 7, by P.G. Woodhouse. Chapter 13, The Great Sermon Handicap After Goodwood's over, I generally find that I get a bit restless. I'm not much of a lad for the birds and the bees and the great open spaces as a rule, but there's no doubt that London's not at its best in August, and rather tends to give me the pip, and make me think of popping down into the country till things have bucked up a trifle. London... "'about a couple of weeks after that spectacular finish of young bingos, "'which I've just been telling you about, "'was empty and smelled of burning asphalt. "'All my pals were away. "'Most of the theatres were shut, "'and they were taking up Piccadilly in large spadefuls. "'It was most infernally hot. "'As I sat in the old flat one night, "'trying to muster up energy enough to go to bed, "'I felt I couldn't stand it much longer. "'And when Jeeves came in with the tissue restorers on a tray,' I put the thing to him squarely. Jeeves, I said, wiping the brow and gasping like a stranded goldfish, it's beastly hot. 
The weather is oppressive, sir. Not all the soda, Jeeves? No, sir. I think we've had about enough of the metrop for the time being, and require a change. Shift ho, I think, Jeeves. What? Just as you say, sir. There is a letter on the tray, sir. By Jove, Jeeves, that was practically poetry. Rhyme, did you notice? I opened the letter. I say this is rather extraordinary. Sir? You know Twing Hall? Yes, sir. Well, Mr. Little is there. Indeed, sir. Absolutely in the flesh. He's had to take another of those tutoring jobs. After that fearful mix-up at Goodwood, when young Bingo Little, a broken man, had touched me for a tenor and whizzed silently off into the unknown, I had been all over the place, asking mutual friends if they had heard anything of him. But nobody had. And all the time he had been at Twing Hall. Rummy. And I'll tell you why it was rummy. Twing Hall belongs to old Lord Wick Hammersley, a great pal of my governor's when he was alive, and I have a standing invitation to pop down there when I like. I generally put in a week or two sometime in the summer, and I was thinking of going there before I read the letter. And what's more, Jeeves, my cousin Claude and my cousin Eustace, you remember them? Very vividly, sir. Well, they're down there too, reading for some exam or other with the vicar. I used to read with him myself at one time. He's known far and wide as a pretty hot coach for those of fairly feeble intellect. Well, when I tell you he got me through Smalls, you'd gather that he's a bit of a hummer. I call this most extraordinary. I read the letter again. It was from Eustace. Claude and Eustace are twins, and more or less generally admitted to be the curse of the human race. The Vicarage, Twing, Gloucestershire. Dear Bertie, do you want to make a bit of money? I hear you had a bad Goodwood, so you probably do. Well, come down here quick and get in on the biggest sporting event of the season. I'll explain when I see you, but you can take it from me. It's all right. Claude and I are with a reading party at Old Heppenstall's. There are nine of us, not counting your pal Bingo Little, who is tutoring the kid up at the hall. Don't miss this golden opportunity, which may never occur again. Come and join us. Yours, Eustace. I handed this to Jeeves. He studied it thoroughly. What do you make of it? A rummy communication, what? Very high-spirited young gentlemen, sir, Mr. Claude and Mr. Eustace. Up to some game, I should be disposed to imagine. Yes, but what game, do you think? It is impossible to say, sir. Did you observe that the letter continues over the page? Eh, what? I grabbed the thing. This was what was on the other side of the last page. Sermon Handicap Runners and Betting Probable Starters Reverend Joseph Tucker, Badgwick, Scratch Reverend Leonard Starkey, Stapleton, Scratch. Reverend Alexander Jones, Upper Bingley, receives three minutes. Reverend W. Dix, Little Clickton in the Wald, receives five minutes. Reverend Francis Heppenstall, Twing, receives eight minutes. Reverend Cuthbert Dibble, Boasted Parva, receives nine minutes. Reverend Orlo Huff, Boasted Magna, receives nine minutes. Reverend J. J. Roberts, Fail by the Water, receives ten minutes. Reverend G. Hayward, Lower Bingley, receives twelve minutes. Reverend James Bates, Gandal by the Hill, receives fifteen minutes. The above have arrived. Prices. Five to two, Tucker Starkey. Three to one, Jones. Nine to two, Dix. Six to one, Heppenstall Dibble Huff. One hundred to eight, any other. It baffled me. Do you understand it, Jeeves? No, sir. 
"'Well, I think we ought to have a look into it anyway, what?' "'Undoubtedly, sir.' "'Right-o, then. "'Pack our spare dicky and a toothbrush in a neat paper-brown parcel, "'send a wire to Lord Wick Hammersley to say we're coming, "'and buy two tickets on the 5.10 at Paddington tomorrow.' "'The 5.10 was late as usual, "'and everybody was dressing for dinner when I arrived at the hall. "'It was only by getting into my evening things in record time "'and taking the stairs to the dining-room in a couple of bounds "'that I managed to dead heat with the soup.' I slid into the vacant chair, and found that I was sitting next to Oldwick Hammersley's youngest daughter, Cynthia. "'Oh, hello, old thing,' I said. "'Great pals we've always been. In fact, there was a time when I had an idea I was in love with Cynthia. However, it blew over. A dashed pretty and lively and attractive girl, mind you, but full of ideals and all that. I may be wronging her, but I have an idea that she's the sort of girl who would want a fellow to carve out a career and what not.' I know I've heard her speak favourably of Napoleon. So, what with one thing and another, the jolly old frenzy sort of petered out, and now we're just pals. I think she's a topper, and she thinks me next door to a loony, so everything's nice and matey. Well, Bertie, so you've arrived? Oh, yes, I've arrived. Here I am. I say, I seem to have plunged into the middle of quite a young dinner party. Who are all these coves? Oh, just people from round about. You know most of them. "'You remember Colonel Willis and the Spencers?' "'Of course, yes! "'And there's old Heppenstall. "'Who's the other clergyman next to Mrs. Spencer?' "'Mr. Hayward, from Lower Bingley. "'What an amazing lot of clergymen there are round here! "'Right, there's another next to Mrs. Willis. "'That's Mr. Bates, Mr. Heppenstall's nephew. "'He's an assistant master at Eton. "'He's down here during the summer holidays, "'acting as locum tenens for Mr. Spettigue, "'the rector of Gandle-by-the-Hill.' I thought I knew his face. He was in the fourth year at Oxford when I was a fresher. Rather a blood. Got his rowing blue and all that. I took another look round the table and spotted young Bingo. Ah, there he is, I said. There's the old egg. There's who? Young Bingo Little. Great pal of mine. He's tutoring your brother, you know. Good gracious. Is he a friend of yours? Rather. Known him all my life. Then tell me, Bertie, is he at all weak in the head? "'Weak in the head? "'I don't mean simply because he's a friend of yours, "'but he's so strange in his manner. "'How do you mean? "'Well, he keeps looking at me so oddly. "'Oddly? "'How? "'Give me an imitation. "'I can't in front of all these people. "'Yes, you can. "'I'll hold my napkin up. "'All right, then. "'Quick. "'There.' "'Considering that she had only about a second and a half to do it in, "'I must say it was a jolly fine exhibition.' She opened her mouth and eyes pretty wide, and let her jaw drop sideways, and managed to look so like a dyspeptic calf that I recognised the symptoms immediately. Oh, that's all right, I said. No need to be alarmed. He's simply in love with you. In love with me? Don't be absurd. My dear old thing, you don't know young Bingo. He can fall in love with anybody. Thank you. Oh, I didn't mean it that way, you know. I don't wonder it is taking to you. "'Why, I was in love with you myself once. "'Once? Ah! "'And all that remains now are the cold ashes? "'This isn't one of your tactful evenings, Bertie. "'Well, my dear sweet thing, dash it all, "'considering that you gave me the bird "'and nearly laughed yourself into a permanent state of hiccups "'when I asked you. "'Oh, I'm not reproaching you. "'No doubt there were faults on both sides. "'He's very good-looking, isn't he? "'Good-looking? Bingo! "'Bingo good-looking? "'No, I say, come now, really.' I mean, compared with some people. 
said Cynthia. Sometime after this, Lady Wickhammersley gave the signal for the females of the species to leg it, and they duly stampeded. I didn't get a chance of talking to young Bingo when they'd gone, and later in the drawing-room he didn't show up. I found him eventually in his room, lying on the bed with his feet on the rail, smoking a tufa. There was a notebook on the counterpane beside him. "'Hello, old Scream,' I said. "'Hello, Bertie,' he replied, in what seemed to me rather a moody, distraught sort of manner. "'Rummy, finding you down here, I take it your uncle cut off your allowance out of that Goodwood binge, and you had to take this tutoring job to keep the wolf from the door.' "'Correct,' said young Bingo tersely. "'Well, you might have let your pals know where you were.' He frowned darkly. I didn't want them to know where I was. I wanted to creep away and hide myself. I've been through a bad time, Bertie, these last weeks. The sun ceased to shine. That's curious. We've had gorgeous weather in London. The birds ceased to sing. What birds? Well, the devil doesn't matter what birds, said young Bingo with some asperity. Any birds? The birds round about here. You don't expect me to specify them by their pet names, do you? I tell you, Bertie, it hit me hard at first. Very hard. What hit you? I simply couldn't follow the blighter. Charlotte's calculated callousness. Oh, ah! I've seen poor old Bingo through so many unsuccessful love affairs that I'd almost forgotten there was a girl mixed up with that Goodwood business, of course. Charlotte Corday Rowbotham. "'and she had given him the raspberry, I remembered, "'and gone off with Comrade Butt. "'I went through torments. "'Recently, however, I've, uh, <laughs> bucked up a bit. "'Tell me, Bertie, what are you doing down here? "'I didn't know you knew these people. "'Me? I've known them since I was a kid.' "'Young Bingo put his feet down with a thud. "'Do you mean to say you've known Lady Cynthia all that time? "'Rather!' She can't have been seven when I met her first. Good Lord, said young Bingo. He looked at me for the first time as though I amounted to something and swallowed a mouthful of smoke the wrong way. I love that girl, Bertie, he went on when he'd finished coughing. Yes, nice girl, of course. He eyed me with a pretty deep loathing. Don't speak of her in that horrible, casual way. She's an angel, an angel. "'Was she talking about me at all at dinner, Bertie?' "'Oh, yes. What did she say?' "'I remember one thing. She said she thought you good-looking.' Young Bingo closed his eyes in a sort of ecstasy. Then he picked up the notebook. "'Pop off now, old man. There's a good chap,' he said in a hushed, faraway voice. "'I've got a bit of writing to do.' "'Writing? Poetry, if you must know. I wish the Dickens—' said young Bingo, not without some bitterness. She had been christened something except Cynthia. There isn't a damn word in the language it rhymes with. Ye gods, how I could have spread myself if she had only been called Jane. Bright and early next morning, as I lay in bed blinking at the sunlight on the dressing-table and wondering when Jeeves was going to show up with a cup of tea, a heavy weight descended on my toes— and the voice of young Bingo polluted the air. The blighter had apparently risen with a lark. Leave me, I said. I would be alone. I can't see anybody till I've had my tea. When Cynthia smiles, said young Bingo, the skies are blue. 
the world takes on a roseate hue. Birds in the garden trill and sing, and joy is king of everything. When Cynthia smiles, he coughed, changing gears. When Cynthia frowns, what the devil are you talking about? I'm reading you my poem, the one I wrote to Cynthia last night. I'll go on, shall I? No, no, no. I haven't had my tea. At this moment, Jeeves came in with a good old beverage, and I sprang on it with a glad cry. After a couple of sips, things looked a bit brighter. Even young Bingo didn't offend the eye to quite such an extent. By the time I'd finished the first cup, I was a new man. So much so that I not only permitted but encouraged the poor fish to read the rest of the bally thing, and even went so far as to criticise the scansion of the fourth line of the fifth verse. We were still arguing the point when the door burst open and in blew Claude and Eustace. One of the things which discourages me about rural life is the frightful earliness with which events begin to break loose. I've stayed at places in the country. Where、well, they've jerked me out of the dreamless at about six thirty to go for a jolly swim in the lake, at Twing, thank heaven, they know me and let me breakfast in bed. The twins seemed pleased to see me. Good old Bertie said Claude. Stout fellow said Eustace. The Rev told us you had arrived. I thought that letter of mine would fetch you. You can always bank on Bertie said Claude. A sportsman to the fingertips. Well, has Bingo told you about it? Not a word. He's been. We've been talking," said Bingo hastily. "Of other matters." Claude pinched the last slice of thin bread and butter, and Eustace poured himself out a cup of tea. "It's like this, Bertie," said Eustace, settling down cosily. "As I told you in my letter, there are nine of us marooned on this desert spot, reading with old Heppenstall. Well, of course, nothing is jollier than sweating up the classics when it's a hundred in the shade." But there does come a time when you begin to feel the need of a little relaxation, and by Jove, there are absolutely no facilities for relaxation in this place, whatever. And then Steggles got this idea. Steggles is one of our reading party, and between ourselves, rather a worm as a general thing. Still, you have to give him credit for getting this idea. What idea? Well, you know how many parsons there are round about here. There are about a dozen hamlets within a radius of six miles, and each hamlet has a church, and each church has a parson, and each parson preaches a sermon every Sunday. Tomorrow week, Sunday the twenty-third, we're running off the great sermon handicap. Steggles is making the book. Each parson is to be clocked by a reliable steward of the course, and the one that preaches the longest sermon wins. Did you study the race card I sent you? I couldn't understand what it was all about. Why, you chump! It gives the handicaps and the current odds on each starter. I've got another one here in case you've lost yours. Take a careful look at it. It gives you the thing in a nutshell. Jeeves, old son, do you want a sporting flutter, sir? Said Jeeves, who had just meandered in with my breakfast. Claude explained the scheme. Amazing the way Jeeves grasped it right off, but he merely smiled in a paternal sort of way. Thank you, sir. I think not. Well, you're with us, Bertie, aren't you? Said Claude, sneaking a roll and a slice of bacon. Have you studied that card? Well, tell me. Does anything strike you about it? Of course it did. It had struck me the moment I looked at it. Why, it's a sitter for old Heppenstall. I said. He's got the events sewed up in a parcel. 
"'There isn't a parson in the land who could give him eight minutes. "'Your pal Steggles must be an ass giving him a handicap like that. "'Why, in the days when I was with him, old Heppenstall never used to preach under half an hour, "'and there was one sermon of his on brotherly love, "'which lasted forty-five minutes if it lasted a second. "'Has he lost his vim lately, or what is it?' "'Not a bit of it,' said Eustace. "'Tell him what happened, Claude.' "'Why,' said Claude, "'the first Sunday we were here, "'we all went to Twing Church, "'and old Heppenstall preached a sermon "'that was well under twenty minutes. "'This is what happened. "'Steggles didn't notice it, "'and the Rev didn't notice it himself, "'but Eustace and I both spotted "'that he had dropped a chunk of at least "'half a dozen pages out of his sermon case "'as he was walking up to the pulpit. "'He sort of flickered when he got to the gap in the manuscript,' but carried on all right, and Steggles went away with the impression that twenty minutes or a bit under was his usual form. The next Sunday we heard Tucker and Starkey, and they both went well over thirty-five minutes, so Steggles arranged the handicapping as you see on the card. You must come into this, Bertie. You see, the trouble is that I haven't a bean, and Eustace hasn't a bean, and Bingo Little hasn't a bean, so you'll have to finance the syndicate. Don't weaken! It's just putting money in all our pockets. Well, We'll have to be getting back now. Think the thing over, and phone me later in the day. And if you let us down, Bertie, may a cousin's curse... Come on, Claude, old thing. The more I studied the scheme, the better it looked. How about it, Jeeves? I said. Jeeves smiled gently and drifted out. Jeeves has no sporting blood, said Bingo. Well, I have. I'm coming into this. Claude's quite right. It's like finding money by the wayside. Good man, said Bingo. Now I can see daylight. Say I have a tenor on Heppenstall and Cop. That'll give me a bit in hand to back Pink Pill within the two o'clock at Gatwick the week after next. Cop on that, put the pile on Muskrat for the one-thirty at Lewes. And there I am with a nice little sum to take to Alexandra Park on September the 10th when I've got a tip straight from the stable. It sounded like a bit out of Smile's self-help. And then said young Bingo, I'll be in a position to go to my uncle and beard him in his lair somewhat. He's quite a bit of a snob, you know, and when he hears that I'm going to marry the daughter of an earl, I say, old man, I couldn't help saying, aren't you looking ahead rather far? Oh, that's all right. It's true nothing's actually settled yet, but she's practically told me the other day she was fond of me. What? Well, she said that the sort of man she liked was the self-reliant, manly man with strength, good looks, character, ambition, and initiative. Leave me, laddie, I said. Leave me to my fried egg. Directly I'd got up, I went to the phone, snatched Eustace away from his morning's work, and instructed him to put a tenor on the twing flyer at current odds for each of the syndicate. And after lunch, Eustace rang me up to say that he had done business at a snappy seven-to-one, the odds having lengthened, owing to a rumour in knowledgeable circles that the Rev was subject to hay fever, and was taking big chances strolling in the paddock behind the vicarage in the early mornings. And it was dashed lucky, I thought next day, that we had managed to get the money on in time, for on the Sunday morning old Heppenstall fairly took the bit between his teeth and gave us thirty-six solid minutes on certain popular superstitions. I was sitting next to Steggles in the pew, and I saw him blench visibly. He was a little rat-faced fellow, with shifty eyes and a suspicious nature. 
The first thing he did when we emerged into the open air was to announce formally that anyone who fancied the Rev could now be accommodated at fifteen to eight on. And he added, in a rather nasty manner, that if he had his way, this sort of in-and-out running would be brought to the attention of the jockey club, but that he supposed that there was nothing to be done about it. This ruinous prize checked the punters at once, and there was little money inside. And so matters stood, till just after lunch on Tuesday afternoon, when, as I was strolling up and down in front of the house with a cigarette, Claude and Eustace came bursting up the drive on bicycles, dripping with momentous news. Bertie, said Claude, deeply agitated, unless we take immediate action and do a bit of quick thinking, we're in the cart. What's the matter? Gee, Hayward's the matter, said Eustace morosely. The lower Bingley starter. We never even considered him, said Claude. Somehow or other he got overlooked. It's always the way. Steggles overlooked him. We all overlooked him. But Eustace and I happened by the merest fluke to be riding through Lower Bingley this morning, and there was a wedding on at the church, and it suddenly struck us that it wouldn't be a bad move to get a line on G. Hayward's form, in case he might be a dark horse. And it was jolly lucky we did, said Eustace. He delivered an address of twenty-six minutes by Claude's stopwatch. At a village wedding, mark you. What'll he do when he really extends himself? There's only one thing to be done, Bertie, said Claude. You must spring some more funds so we can hedge on Hayward and save ourselves. But, well, it's the only way out. But I say, you know, I hate the idea of all that money we put on Heppenstall being chucked away. What else can you suggest? You don't suppose the Rev can give this absolute marvel a handicap and win, do you? I've got it, I said. What? I see a way by which we can make it safe for our nominee. I'll pop over this afternoon and ask him as a personal favour to preach that sermon of his on brotherly love on Sunday. Claude and Eustace looked at each other, like those chappies in the poem, with a wild surmise. It's a scheme, said Claude. A jolly brainy scheme, said Eustace. I didn't think you had it in you, Bertie. But even so, said Claude, Fizzer as that sermon no doubt is, will it be good enough in the face of a four-minute handicap? Rather, I said. When I told you it lasted forty-five minutes, I was probably understating it. I should call it, from my recollection of the thing, nearer fifty. And then carry on, said Claude. I toddled over in the evening and fixed the thing up. Old Heppenstall was most decent about the whole affair. He seemed pleased and touched that I should have remembered the sermon all these years— and said he had once or twice had an idea of preaching it again, only it had seemed to him on reflection that it was perhaps a trifle long for a rustic congregation. And in these restless times, my dear Worcester, he said, I fear that brevity in the pulpit is becoming more and more desiderated by even the bucolic churchgoer, who one might have supposed would be less afflicted with the spirit of hurry and impatience his metropolitan brother. I've had many arguments on the subject with my nephew, young Bates, who is taking my old friend Spettigue's cure over at Gandal by the Hill. His view is that a sermon nowadays should be a bright, brisk, straight-from-the-shoulder address, never lasting more than ten or twelve minutes. Long? I said. Why, oh, my goodness! 
"'You don't call that brotherly love sermon of yours long, do you? "'It takes fully fifty minutes to deliver. "'Surely not. "'Your incredulity, my dear Worcester, is extremely flattering. "'Far more flattering, of course, than I deserve. "'Nevertheless, the facts are as I have stated. "'You are sure that I would not be well advised "'to make certain excisions and eliminations?' You do not think it would be a good thing to cut, to prune? I might, for example, delete the rather exhaustive excursus into the family life of the early Assyrians. Don't touch a word of it, or you'll spoil the whole thing, I said earnestly. I am delighted to hear you say so, and I shall preach the sermon without fail next Sunday morning. What I have always said what I always shall say is that this anti-post betting is a mistake, an error, and a mug's game. You never can tell what's going to happen. If fellows would only stick to the good old SP, there would be fewer men go wrong. I'd hardly finished my breakfast on Saturday morning when Jeeves came to my bedside to say that Eustace wanted me on the telephone. Good Lord, Jeeves, what's the matter, do you think? I'm bound to say I was beginning to get a bit jumpy by this time. Mr. Eustace did not confide in me, sir. Has he got the wind up? Somewhat vertically, sir, to judge by his voice. Do you know what I think, Jeeves? Something's gone wrong with the favourite. Which is the favourite, sir? Mr. Heppenstall. He's gone to odds on. He was intending to preach a sermon on brotherly love, which would have brought him home by lengths. I wonder if anything's happened to him. You could ascertain, sir, by speaking to Mr. Eustace on the telephone. He is holding the wire. By Jove, yes! I shoved on a dressing gown and flew downstairs like a mighty rushing wind. The moment I heard Eustace's voice, I knew we were for it. It had a croak of agony in it. Bertie? Here I am. Deuce of a time you've been, Bertie. We're sunk. The favourite's blown up. No. Yes. Coughing in his stable all last night. What? Absolutely. Hey, fever! Oh, my sainted aunt! The doctor is with him now, and it's only a question of minutes before he's officially scratched. That means the curate will show up at the post instead, and he's no good at all. He is being offered at a hundred to six, but no takers. What shall we do? I had to grapple with the thing for a moment in silence. Eustace, hello. What can you get on G. Hayward? Only four to one now. I think there's been a leak, and Steggles has heard something. The odds shortened late last night in a significant manner. Well, four to one will clear us. Put another fiver all round on G. Hayward for the syndicate. That'll bring us out on the right side of the ledger. If he wins? What do you mean? I thought you considered him a cert, bar Heppenstall. I'm beginning to wonder, said Eustace gloomily. If there is such a thing as a cert in this world— I'm told the Reverend Joseph Tucker did an extraordinarily fine trial gallop at a mother's meeting over at Badgwick yesterday. However, it seems our only chance. So long. Not being one of the official stewards, I had my choice of churches next morning, and naturally I didn't hesitate. The only drawback in going to Lower Bingley was that it was ten miles away, which meant an early start, but I borrowed a bicycle from one of the grooms and tooled off. I had only Eustace's word for it that G. Hayward was such a stayer, 
and it might have been that he had showed too flattering form at that wedding where the twins had heard him preach. But any misgivings I may have had disappeared the moment he got into the pulpit. Eustace had been right. The man was a trier. He was a tall, rangy-looking greybeard, and he went off from the start with a nice, easy action, pausing and clearing his throat at the end of each sentence. And it wasn't five minutes before I realized that here was the winner. His habit of stopping dead and looking round the church at intervals was worth minutes to us, and in the home stretch we gained no little advantage owing to his dropping his pince-nez and having to grope for them. At the twenty-minute mark, he had merely settled down. Twenty-five minutes saw him going strong, and when he finally finished with a good burst, the clock showed thirty-five minutes fourteen seconds. With the handicap which he had been given, this seemed to me to make the event easy for him, and it was with much bonhomie and goodwill to all men that I hopped onto the old bike and started back to the hall for lunch. Bingo was talking on the phone when I arrived. Fine, splendid, topping, he was saying. Eh? Oh, we needn't worry about him. Right, oh, I'll tell Bertie. He hung up the receiver and caught sight of me. Oh, hello, Bertie. I was just talking to Eustace. It's all right, old man. The report from Lower Bingley has just got in. Gee, Hayward romps home. I knew he would. I've just come from there. Oh, are you there? I went to Badgwick. Tucker ran a splendid race, but the handicap was too much for him. Starkey had a sore throat and was nowhere. Roberts, of failed by the water, ran third. Good old G. Hayward, said Bingo affectionately, and we strolled out onto the terrace. Are all the returns in, then? I asked. All except Gandal by the hill. But we needn't worry about Bates. He never had a chance. By the way, poor old Jeeves loses his tenor. "'Silly ass. Jeeves? How do you mean?' "'He came to me this morning, just after you had left, "'and asked me to put a tenner on Bates for him. "'I told him he was a chump, and begged him not to throw his money away, "'but he would do it. "'I beg your pardon, sir. "'This note arrived for you just after you had left the house this morning.' "'Jeeves had materialised from nowhere, and was standing at my elbow. "'Eh, hey, what? Note?' The Reverend Mr. Heppenstall's butler brought it over from the vicarage, sir. It came too late to be delivered to you at the moment. Young Bingo was talking to Jeeves like a father on the subject of betting against the form book. The yell I gave made him bite his tongue in the middle of a sentence. What the dickens is the matter? he asked, not a little peeved. We're dished. Listen to this. I read him the note. The vicarage, Twing, Gloucestershire. My dear Worcester, as you may have heard, circumstances, over which I have no control, will prevent my preaching the sermon on brotherly love, for which you made such a flattering request. I am unwilling, however, that you shall be disappointed. So if you will attend divine service at Gandal by the Hill this morning, you will hear my sermon preached by young Bates, my nephew. I have lent him the manuscript at his urgent desire— for between ourselves there are wheels within wheels. My nephew is one of the candidates for the headmastership of a well-known public school, and the choice has narrowed down between him and one rival. Late yesterday evening James received private information that the head of the Board of Governors of the school proposed to sit under him this Sunday, in order to judge of the merits of his preaching. 
a most important item in swaying the board's choice. I acceded to his plea that I lend him my sermon on brotherly love, of which, like you, he apparently retains a vivid recollection. It would have been too late for him to compose a sermon of suitable length in place of the brief address, which, mistakenly in my opinion, he had designed to deliver to his rustic flock, and I wish to help the boy, trusting that his preaching of the sermon will supply you with as pleasant memories as you say you have of mine, I remain cordially yours, F. Heppenstall. P.S. The hay fever has rendered my eyes unpleasantly weak for the time being, so I am dictating this letter to my butler, Brookfield, who will convey it to you. I don't know when I've experienced a more massive silence than the one that followed my reading of this cheery epistle. Young Bingo gulped once or twice, and practically every known emotion came and went on his face. Jeeves coughed one soft, low, gentle cough like a sheep with a blade of grass stuck in its throat, and then stood gazing serenely at the landscape. Finally, young Bingo spoke. Great Scott, he whispered hoarsely. An S.P. job! I believe that is the technical term, sir, said Jeeves. So you had inside information, dash it, said young Bingo. Why, yes, sir, said Jeeves. Brookfield happened to mention the contents of the note to me when he brought it. We are old friends. Bingo registered grief, anguish, rage, despair, and resentment. Well, all I can say, he cried, is that it's a bit thick, preaching another man's sermon. Do you call that honest? Do you call that playing the game? Well, my dear old thing, I said, be fair. It's quite within the rules. Clergymen do it all the time. They aren't expected always to make up the sermons they preach. Jeeves coughed again, and fixed me with an expressionless eye. And in the present case, sir, if I may be permitted to take the liberty of making the observation, I think we should make allowances. We should remember that the securing of this headmastership meant everything to the young couple. Young couple? What young couple? The Reverend James Bates, sir, and Lady Cynthia. I am informed by her ladyship's maid that they have been engaged to be married for some weeks, provisionally, so to speak, and his lordship made his consent conditional on Mr. Bates securing a really important and remunerative position. Young Bingo turned a light green. Engaged to be married? Yes, sir. There was a silence. I think I'll go for a walk, said Bingo. But my dear old thing, I said, it's just lunchtime. The gong will be going any minute now. I don't want any lunch, said Bingo. Chapter 14. The Purity of the Turf After that, life at Twing jogged along pretty peacefully for a bit. Twing is one of those places where there isn't a frightful lot to do, nor any very hectic excitement to look forward to. In fact, the only event of any importance on the horizon, as far as I could ascertain, was the annual village school treat. One simply filled in the time by loafing about the grounds, playing a bit of tennis, and avoiding young Bingo as far as was humanly possible. This last was a very necessary move, if you wanted a happy life, 
for the Cynthia affair had jarred the unfortunate mutt to such an extent that he was always waylaying one and decanting his anguished soul. And when one morning he blew into my bedroom when I was toying with a bit of breakfast, I decided to take a firm line from the start. I could stand having him moaning all over me after dinner, and even after lunch, but at breakfast, no. We Worcesters are amiability itself, but there is a limit. Now, look here, old friend, I said. I know your bally heart is broken and all that, and at some future time I shall be delighted to hear all about it. But I didn't come to talk about that. No? Good egg. The past, said young Bingo, is dead. Let us say no more about it. Right, oh. I have been wounded to the very depths of my soul, but don't speak about it. I won't. Ignore it. Forget it. Absolutely. I hadn't seen him so dashed reasonable for days. What I came to see you about this morning, Bertie, he said, fishing a sheet of paper out of his pocket, was to ask if you would care to come in on another little flutter. If there is one thing we Worcesters are simply dripping with, it is sporting blood. I bolted the rest of my sausage and sat up and took notice. Proceed, I said. You interest me strangely, old bird. Bingo laid the paper on the bed. On Monday week, he said, you may or may not know, the annual village school treat takes place. Lord Wick Hammersley lends the hall grounds for the purpose. There will be games and a conjurer and coconut shies and tea in a tent and also sports. I know. Cynthia was telling me. Young Bingo winced. Would you mind not mentioning that name? I am not made of marble. Sorry. Well, as I was saying, this jamboree is slated for Monday week. The question is, are we on? How do you mean, are we on? I am referring to the sports. Steggles did so well out of the sermon handicap that he has decided to make a book on these sports. Punters can be accommodated by anti-post odds or starting price, according to their preference. I think we ought to look into it, said young Bingo. I pressed the bell. I'll consult Jeeves. I don't touch any sporting proposition without his advice. Jeeves, I said as he drifted in, rally round. Sir, stand by. We want your advice. Very good, sir. State your case, Bingo. Bingo stated his case. What about it, Jeeves? I said. Do we go in? Jeeves pondered to some extent. I am inclined to favour the idea, sir. That was good enough for me. Right, I said. Then we will form a syndicate and bust the ring. I supply the money, you supply the brains, and Bingo... What do you supply, Bingo? If you will carry me and let me settle up later, said young Bingo, I think I can put you in the way of winning a parcel on the mother's sack race. All right. We will put you down as inside information. Now, what are the events? Bingo reached for his paper and consulted it. Girls under fourteen fifty-yard dash seems to open the proceedings. Anything to say about that, Jeeves? No, sir, I have no information. What's next? Boys and girls mixed animal potato race, all ages. This was a new one to me. I'd never heard of it at any of the big meetings. What's that? Rather sporting, said young Bingo. The competitors each enter in couples, each couple being assigned an animal cry and a potato. 
For instance, let's suppose that you and Jeeves entered. Jeeves would stand at a fixed point holding a potato. You would have your head in a sack, and you would grope about trying to find Jeeves and making a noise like a cat. Jeeves also makes a noise like a cat. Other competitors would be making noises like cows and pigs and dogs, and so on, and groping about for their potato holders, who would also be making noises like cows and pigs and dogs, and so on. I stopped the poor fish. Jolly if you're fond of animals, I said, but on the whole, precisely, sir, said Jeeves, I wouldn't touch it. Too open, what? Exactly, sir. Very hard to estimate form. Carry on, Bingo. Where do we go from there? Mother's sack race. Ah, that's better. This is where you know something. A gift for Mrs. Penworthy, the tobacconist's wife, said Bingo confidently. I was in her shop yesterday, buying cigarettes, and she told me she had won three times at fairs in Worcestershire. She only moved to these parts a short time ago, so nobody knows about her. She promised me she would keep herself dark, and I think we could get a good price. Risk a tenner each way, Jeeves, what? I think so, sir. Girls open egg and spoon race, read Bingo. How about that? I doubt if it would be worthwhile to invest, sir, said Jeeves. I am told it is a certainty for last year's winner, Sarah Mills, who will doubtless start an odds-on favourite. Good, is she? They tell me in the village that she carries a beautiful egg, sir. Then there's the obstacle race, said Bingo. Risky, in my opinion, like getting on the Grand National. Father's hat-trimming contest, another speculative event. That's all, except for the choir boy's hundred yards handicap, for a pewter mug presented by the vicar, open to all whose voices have not broken before the second Sunday in Epiphany. Willie Chambers won last year in a canter, receiving fifteen yards. This time he will probably be handicapped out of the race. I don't know what to advise. If I may make a suggestion, sir. I eyed Jeeves with interest. I don't know that I've ever seen him look so nearly excited. You've got something up your sleeve? I have, sir. Red hot? That precisely describes it, sir. I think I may confidently assert that we have a winner in the choir boy's handicap under this very roof, sir. Harold, the page boy. Page boy? Do you mean that tubby little chap in buttons one sees bobbing about here and there? Why, dash it, Jeeves, nobody has a greater respect for your knowledge of form than I have, but I'm hanged if I can see Harold catching the judge's eye. He's practically circular, and every time I've seen him, he's been leaning up against something, half asleep. He receives thirty yards, sir, and could win from scratch. The boy is a flyer. How do you know? Jeeves coughed and there was a dreamy look in his eye. I was as much astonished as yourself, sir, when I first became aware of the lad's capabilities. I happened to pursue him one morning with the intention of fetching him a clip on the side of the head. Great Scott, Jeeves, you! Yes, sir. The boy is of an outspoken disposition, and had made an appropriate remark respecting my personal appearance. What did he say about your appearance? I have forgotten, sir said Jeeves, with a touch of austerity. But it was opprobrious. I endeavoured to correct him, but he outdistanced me by yards and made good his escape. But I say, Jeeves, this is sensational, and yet 
If he's such a sprinter, why hasn't anybody in the village found out? Surely he plays with the other boys. No, sir. As his lordship's page boy, Harold does not mix with the village lads. Bit of a snob, what? He is somewhat acutely alive to the existence of class distinctions, sir. You're absolutely certain he's such a wonder, said Bingo. I mean, it wouldn't do to plunge unless you're sure. If you desire to ascertain the boy's form by personal inspection, sir, it will be a simple matter to arrange a secret trial. I'm bound to say I should feel easier in my mind, I said. Then if I may take a shilling from the money on your dressing table, what for? I propose to bribe the lad to speak slightingly of the second footman's squint, sir. Charles is somewhat sensitive on the point, and shall undoubtedly make the lad extend himself. If you will be at the first-floor passage window, overlooking the back door, in half an hour's time, I don't know when I've dressed in such a hurry. As a rule, I'm what you might call a slow and careful dresser. I like to linger over the tie, and see that the trousers are just so. But this morning I was all worked up. I just shoved on my things anyhow, and joined Bingo at the window with a quarter of an hour to spare. The passage window looked down on to a broad sort of paved courtyard, which ended after about twenty yards in an archway through a high wall. Beyond this archway you got on to a strip of the drive, which curved round for another thirty yards or so, till it was lost behind a thick shrubbery. I put myself in the stripling's place, and thought what steps I would take with the second footman after me. There was only one thing to do, leg it for the shrubbery and take cover, which meant that at least fifty yards would have to be covered, an excellent test. If good old Harold could fight off the second footman's challenge long enough to allow him to reach the bushes, there wasn't a choir boy in England who would give him thirty yards in a hundred. I waited, all of a twitter, for what seemed hours— and then suddenly there was a confused noise without, and something round and blue and buttony shot through the back door and buzzed for the archway like a mustang, and about two seconds later out came the second footman going his hardest. There was nothing to it, absolutely nothing. The field never had a chance. Long before the footman reached the halfway mark, Harold was in the bushes throwing stones. I came away from the window thrilled to the marrow and when I met Jeeves on the stairs, I was so moved that I nearly grasped his hand. Jeeves, I said, no discussion. The Worcester shirt goes on this boy. Very good, sir, said Jeeves. The worst of these country meetings is that you can't plunge as heavily as you would like when you get a good thing, because it alarms the ring. Steggles, though pimpled, was, as I have indicated, no chump and if I had invested all I wanted to, he would have put two and two together. I managed to get a good solid bet down for the syndicate, however, though it did make him look thoughtful. I heard in the next few days that he had been making searching inquiries in the village concerning Harold, but nobody could tell him anything, and eventually he came to the conclusion, I suppose, that I must be having a long shot on the strength of that thirty-yard start. Public opinion wavered between Jimmy Good receiving ten yards at seven to two, and Alexander Bartlett, with six yards start, at eleven to four. Willie Chambers' scratch was offered to the public at two to one, but found no takers. We were taking no chances on the big event, and directly we had our money on, at a nice hundred to twelve, 
Harold was put into strict training. It was a wearing business, and I can understand now why most of the big trainers are grim, silent men, who look as though they have suffered. The kid wanted constant watching. It was no good talking to him about honour and glory, and how proud his mother would be when he wrote and told her he had won a real cup. The moment the blighted Harold discovered that training meant knocking off pastry, taking exercise, and keeping away from the cigarettes, he was all against it, and it was only by unceasing vigilance that we managed to keep him in any shape at all. It was the diet that was the stumbling block. As far as exercise went, we could generally arrange for a sharp dash every morning with the assistance of the second footman. It ran into money, of course, but that couldn't be helped. Still, when a kid has simply to wait till the butler's back is turned to have the run of the pantry, and has only to nip into the smoking room to collect a handful of the best Turkish, training becomes a rocky job. We could only hope that on the day his natural stamina would pull him through. And then one evening, young Bingo came back from the links with a disturbing story. He had been in the habit of giving Harold mild exercise in the afternoons by taking him out as a caddy. At first, he seemed to think it humorous. The poor chump. He bubbled over with merry mirth as he began his tale. "I say, rather funny this afternoon," he said. "You ought to have seen Steggles' face. Seen Steggles' face? What for? When he saw young Harold sprint, I mean." I was filled with a grim foreboding of an awful doom. Good heavens! You didn't let Harold sprint in front of Steggles. Young Bingo's jaw. Dropped. I never thought of that," he said gloomily. "It wasn't my fault. I was playing around with Steggles, and after we'd finished, we went into the clubhouse for a drink, leaving Harold with the clubs outside. In about five minutes, we came out, and there was the kid on the gravel practicing swings with Steggles' driver and a stone. When he saw us coming, the kid dropped the club and was over the horizon like a streak. Steggles was absolutely dumbfounded, and I must say it was a revelation to me. The kid certainly gave of his best. Of course, it's a nuisance in a way, but I don't see on second thoughts," said Bingo, brightening up. "What it matters? We are in at a good price. We've nothing to lose by the kid's form becoming known. I take it he will start odds on, but that doesn't affect us." I looked at Jeeves. Jeeves looked at me. It affects us all right if he doesn't start at all. Precisely, sir. What do you mean? Asked Bingo. If you ask me, I said, I think Steggles will try to nobble him before the race. Good Lord, I never thought of that. Bingo blenched. You don't think he would really do it? I think he would have a jolly good try. Steggles is a bad man. From now on, Jeeves, we must watch Harold like hawks. Undoubtedly, sir. Ceaseless vigilance. What? Precisely, sir. You wouldn't care to sleep in his room, Jeeves? No, sir. I should not. No, nor would I, if it comes to that. But dash it all! I said, we're letting ourselves get rattled. We're losing our nerve. This won't do. How can Steggles possibly get at Harold, even if he wants to? There was no cheering young Bingo up. He's one of those birds who simply leap at the morbid view if you give them half a chance. There are all sorts of ways of nobbling favourites," he said in a sort of deathbed voice. "You ought to read some of these racing novels. In Pipped on the Post, Lord Jasper Molevera, as near as a toucher, 
outed Bonnie Betsy by bribing the head lad to slip a cobra into her stable the night before the derby. What are the chances of a cobra biting Harold, Jeeves? Slight, I should imagine, sir. And in such an event, knowing the boy as intimately as I do, my anxiety would be entirely for the snake. Still, unceasing vigilance, Jeeves? Most certainly, sir. I must say I got a bit fed with young Bingo in the next few days. It's all very well for a fellow with a big winner in his stable to exercise proper care, but in my opinion, Bingo overdid it. The blighter's mind appeared to be absolutely saturated with racing fiction, and in stories of that kind, as far as I could make out, no horse is ever allowed to start in a race without at least a dozen attempts to put it out of action. He stuck to Harold like a plaster. Never let the unfortunate kid out of his sight. Of course, it meant a lot to the poor old egg if he could collect on this race, because it would give him enough money to chuck his tutoring job and get back to London. But all the same, he needn't have woken me up at three in the morning twice running, only to tell me we ought to cook Harold's food ourselves to prevent doping. The other time to say that he had heard mysterious noises in the shrubbery. But he reached the limit, in my opinion, when he insisted on my going to evening service on Sunday the day before the sports. Why on earth, I said, never being much of a lad for evensong. Well, I can't go myself. I shan't be here. I've got to go to London today with young Egbert. Egbert was Lord Wickhammersley's son, the one Bingo was tutoring. He's going for a visit down in Kent, and I've got to see him off at Charing Cross. It's an infernal nuisance. I shan't be back till Monday afternoon. In fact, I shall miss most of the sports, I expect. Everything, therefore, depends on you, Bertie. But why should either of us go to the evening service? Ass! Harold sings in the choir, doesn't he? What about it? I can't stop him dislocating his neck over a high note, if that's what you're afraid of. Fool! Steggles sings in the choir, too. There may be dirty work after the service. What absolute rot! Is it said young Bingo. Well, let me tell you that in Jenny the girl jockey, the villain kidnapped the boy who was to ride the favourite the night before the big race, and he was the only one who understood and could control the horse, and if the heroine hadn't dressed up in riding things, and, oh, all right, all right, but if there's any danger, it seems to me the simplest thing would be for Harold not to turn out on Sunday evening. He must turn out, you seem to think the infernal kid is a monument of rectitude, beloved by all. He's got the shakiest reputation of any kid in the village. His name is as near being mud as it can jolly well stick. He's played hooky from the choir so often that the vicar told him if one more thing happened, he would fire him out. Nice chumps we should look if he was scratched the night before the race. Well, of course, that being so, there was nothing for it but to toddle along. There's something about evening service in a country church that makes a fellow feel drowsy and peaceful. Sort of end-of-a-perfect-day feeling. Old Heppenstall was up in the pulpit, and he had a kind of regular, bleating delivery that assists thought. They had left the door open, and the air was full of a mixed scent of trees and honeysuckle, and mildew, and villagers' Sunday clothes. As far as the eye could reach, you could see farmers propped up in restful attitudes, breathing heavily, and the children in the congregation 
who had fidgeted during the earlier part of the proceedings, were now lying back in a surfeited sort of coma. The last rays of the setting sun shone through the stained-glass windows. Birds were twittering in the trees, and the women's dresses crackled gently in the stillness. Peaceful, that's what I'm driving at. I felt peaceful. Everybody felt peaceful. And that's why the explosion, when it came, sounded like the end of all things. I call it an explosion, because that was what it seemed like when it broke loose. One moment, a dreamy hush was all over the place, broken only by old Heppenstall talking about our duty to our neighbours, and then, suddenly, a sort of piercing, shrieking squeal that got you right between the eyes and ran all the way down your spine and out at the soles of your feet. It sounded like about six hundred pigs having their tails twisted simultaneously. But it was simply the kid Harold, who appeared to be having some species of fit. He was jumping up and down and slapping at the back of his neck, and about every other second he would take a deep breath and give out another of the squeals. Well, I mean, you can't do that sort of thing in the middle of the sermon during evening service without exciting remark. The congregation came out of its trance with a jerk and climbed on the pews to get a better view. Old Heppenstall stopped in the middle of a sentence and spun round, and a couple of vergers, with great presence of mind, bounded up the aisle like leopards, collected Harold, still squealing, and marched him out. They disappeared into the vestry, and I grabbed my hat and legged it round to the stage door, full of apprehension and what not. I couldn't think what the deuce could have happened, but somewhere dimly behind the proceedings there seemed to me to lurk the hand of the blighter Steggles. By the time I got there, and managed to get someone to open the door, which was locked, the service seemed to be over. Old Heppenstall was standing in the middle of a crowd of choir boys and vergers and sextons and what not, putting the wretched Harold through it with no little vim. I had come in at the tail end of what must have been a fairly fruity oration. "'Wretched boy, how dare you! I've got sensitive skin!' "'This is no time to talk about your skin. "'Somebody put a beetle down my back. "'Absurd. "'I felt it wriggling. "'Nonsense. "'Sounds pretty thin, doesn't it?' "'said someone at my side. "'It was Steggles, dash him, "'clad in a snowy surplice or cassock or whatever they call it, "'and wearing an expression of grave concern. "'The blighter had the cold, cynical crust "'to look me in the eyeball without a blink.' "'Did you put a beetle down his neck?' I cried. "'Me?' said Steggles. "'Me?' Old Heppenstall was putting on the black cap. "'I do not credit a word of your story, wretched boy. "'I have warned you before, and now the time has come to act. "'You cease from this moment to be a member of my choir. "'Go, miserable child!' Steggles plucked at my sleeve. "'In that case?' He said, "'Those bets, you know. "'I'm afraid you lose your money, dear old boy. "'It's a pity you didn't put it on SP. "'I always think SP is the only safe way.' "'I gave him one look. "'Not a bit of good, of course. "'And they talk about the purity of the turf,' I said. "'And I meant it to sting by Jove.' "'Jeeves received the news bravely, "'but I think the man was a bit rattled beneath the surface.' "'An ingenious young gentleman, Mr. Steggles, sir. "'A bally swindler, you mean? "'Perhaps that would be a more exact description. "'However, these things will happen on the turf, 
and it is useless to complain. I wish I had your sunny disposition, Jeeves. Jeeves bowed. We now rely, then, it would seem, sir, almost entirely on Mrs. Penworthy. Should she justify Mr. Little's encomiums and show real class in the mother's sack race, our gains will just balance our losses. Yes, but that's not much consolation when you've been looking forward to a big win. It is just possible that we may still find ourselves on the right side of the ledger after all, sir. Before Mr. Little left, I persuaded him to invest a small sum for the syndicate, of which you were kind enough to make me a member, sir, on the girls' egg and spoon race. On Sarah Mills? No, sir. On a long-priced outsider. Little Prudence Baxter, sir, the child of his lordship's head gardener. Her father assures me she has a very steady hand. She is accustomed to bring him his mug of beer from the cottage each afternoon, and he informs me she has never spilled a drop. Well, that sounded as though young Prudence's control was good, but how about speed? With seasoned performers like Sarah Mills entered, the thing practically amounted to a classic race, and in these big events you must have speed. I am aware that it is what is termed a long shot, sir. Still, I thought it judicious. You backed her for a place too, of course. Yes, sir. Each way. Well, I suppose it's all right. I've never known you to make a bloomer yet. Thank you very much, sir. I'm bound to say that, as a general rule, my idea of a large afternoon would be to keep as far away from a village school treat as possible. A sticky business. But with such grave issues toward, if you know what I mean, I sank my prejudices on this occasion and rolled up. I found the proceedings about as scaly as I had expected. It was a warm day, and the hall grounds were a dense, practically liquid mass of peasantry. Kids seethed to and fro. One of them, a small girl of sorts, grabbed my hand and hung on to it as I clove my way through the jam to where the mother's sack race was to finish. We hadn't been introduced, but she seemed to think I would do as well as anyone else to talk about the rag doll she had won in the lucky dip, and she rather spread herself on the topic. I'm going to call it Gertrude, she said, and I shall undress it every night and put it to bed, and wake it up in the morning and dress it, and put it to bed at night, "'and wake it up the next morning and dress it. "'I say, old thing,' I said, "'I don't want to hurry you and all that, "'but you couldn't condense it a bit, could you? "'I'm rather anxious to see the finish of this race. "'The Worcester fortunes are by way of hanging on it. "'I'm going to run in a race soon,' she said, "'shelving the doll for the nonce "'and descending to ordinary chit-chat. "'Yes,' I said, "'distrait, if you know what I mean, "'and trying to peer through the chinks in the crowd. "'What race is that? "'Egg and Spoon.' "'No, really. Are you Sarah Mills?' "'No,' registering scorn. "'I'm Prudence Baxter.' "'Naturally, this put our relations on a different footing. "'I gazed at her with considerable interest. "'One of the stable. "'I must say she didn't look much of a flyer. "'She was short and round. "'Bit out of condition, I thought. "'I say,' I said, "'that being so, you mustn't dash about in the hot sun "'and take the edge off yourself.' "'You must conserve your energies, old friend. "'Sit down here in the shade.' "'Don't want to sit down. "'Well, take it easy, anyhow.' "'The kid flitted to another topic "'like a butterfly hovering from flower to flower. "'I'm a good girl,' she said. "'I bet you are. "'I hope you're a good egg-and-spoon racer, too.' "'Harold's a bad boy.
boy. Harold squealed in church and isn't allowed to come to the treat. I'm glad. Continued this ornament of her sex, wrinkling her nose virtuously. Because he's a bad boy. He pulled my hair Friday. Harold isn't coming to the treat. Harold isn't coming to the treat, she chanted, making a regular song of it. Don't rub it in, my dear old gardener's daughter, I pleaded. You don't know it, but you've hit on a rather painful subject. Ah, Worcester, my dear fellow. So you've made friends with this little lady. It was old Heppenstall, beaming pretty profusely, life and soul of the party. I am delighted, my dear Worcester, he went on, quite delighted at the way you young men are throwing yourselves into the spirit of this little festivity of ours. Oh, yes, I said. Oh, yes. Even Rupert Steggles. I must confess that my opinion of Rupert Steggles has materially altered for the better this afternoon. Mine hadn't, but I didn't say so. I have always considered Rupert Steggles between ourselves a rather self-centred youth, by no means the kind who would put himself out to further the enjoyment of his fellows. And yet twice within the last half hour I have observed him escorting Mrs. Penworthy, our worthy tobacconist's wife, to the refreshment tent. I left him standing, I shook off the clutching hand of the Baxter kid, and haired it rapidly to the spot where the mother's sack race was just finishing. I had a horrid presentiment that there had been more dirty work at the crossroads. The first person I ran into was young Bingo. I grabbed him by the arm. Who won? I don't know. I didn't notice. There was bitterness in the chappie's voice. It wasn't Mrs. Penworthy, Dasher. Bertie, that hound Steggles is nothing more or less than one of our leading snakes. I don't know how he heard about her, but he must have got on to it that she was dangerous. Do you know what he did? He lured that miserable woman into the refreshment tent five times before the race, and brought her out so weighted down with cake and tea that she blew up in the first twenty yards, just rolled over and lay there. Well, thank goodness we still have Harold. I gaped at the poor chump. Harold? Haven't you heard? Heard? Bingo turned a delicate green. Heard what? I haven't heard anything. I only arrived five minutes ago. Came here straight from the station. What has happened? Tell me. I slipped him the information. He stared at me for a moment, in a ghastly sort of way. Then, with a hollow groan, tottered away and was lost in the crowd. A nasty knock, poor chap. I didn't blame him for being upset. They were clearing the decks now for the egg and spoon race, and I thought I might as well stay where I was and watch the finish. Not that I had much hope. Young Prudence was a good conversationalist, but she didn't seem to me to be built for a winner. As far as I could see through the mob, they got off to a good start. A short, red-haired child was making the running with a freckled blonde second, and Sarah Mills lying up an easy third. Our nominee was straggling along with the field, well behind the leaders. It was not hard even as early as this to spot the winner. There was a grace, a practised precision, in the way Sarah Mills held her spoon that told its own story. She was cutting out a good pace, but her egg didn't even wobble. A natural egg and spooner, if ever there was one. Class will tell. Thirty yards from the tape, the red-haired kid tripped over her feet and shot her egg onto the turf. 
The freckled blonde thought gamely, but she had run herself out halfway down the strait, and Sarah Mills came past and home on a tight rein by several lengths, a popular winner. The blonde was second. A sniffing female in blue gingham beat a pie-faced kid in pink for the place money, and Prudence Baxter, Jeeves's long shot, was either fifth or sixth, I couldn't see which. And then I was carried along with the crowd to where old Heppenstall was going to present the prizes. I found myself standing next to the man Steggles. Hello, old chap, he said very bright and cheery. You've had a bad day, I'm afraid. I looked at him with silent scorn, lost on the blighter, of course. It's not been a good meeting for any of the big punters, he went on. Poor old Bingo Little went down badly after that egg and spoon race. I hadn't been meaning to chat with the fellow, but I was startled. How do you mean badly? I said. We... he only had a small bet on. Don't know what you call small. He had thirty quid each way on the Baxter kid. The landscape reeled before me. What? Thirty quid at ten to one. I thought he must have heard something, but apparently not. The race went by the form book all right. I was trying to do sums in my head. I was just in the middle of working out the syndicate's losses when old Heppenstall's voice came sort of faintly to me out in the distance. He had been pretty fatherly and debonair when ladling out the prizes for the other events, but now he had suddenly grown all pained and grieved. He peered sorrowfully at the multitude. With regard to the girls' egg and spoon race, which has just concluded, he said, I have a painful duty to perform. Circumstances have arisen which it is impossible to ignore. It is not too much to say that I am stunned. He gave the populace about five seconds to wonder why he was stunned, then went on. Three years ago, as you are aware, I was compelled to expunge from the list of events at this annual festival the Father's Quarter Mile owing to reports coming to my ears of wages taken and given on the result at the village inn, and a strong suspicion that on at least one occasion the race had actually been sold by the speediest runner. That unfortunate occurrence shook my faith in human nature, I admit. But still, there was one event at least which I confidently expected to remain untainted by the miasma of professionalism. I allude to the girl's egg and spoon race. It seems, alas, that I was too sanguine. He stopped again and wrestled with his feelings. I will not weary you with the unpleasant details. I will merely say that before the race was run, a stranger in our midst, a manservant of one of the guests at the hall, I will not specify with more particularity, "'approached several of the competitors "'and presented each of them with five shillings "'on condition that they, uh, finished. "'A belated sense of remorse has led him to confess to me what he did, "'but it is too late. "'The evil is accomplished, and retribution must take its course. "'It is no time for half-measures. I must be firm. "'I rule that Sarah Mills, Jane Parker, Bessie Clay— and Rosie Jukes, the first four, to pass the winning post, have forfeited their amateur status, and are disqualified. And this handsome work-bag, presented by Lord Wickhammersley, goes in consequence to Prudence Baxter. 
prudence step forward this is bj harrison i hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of the inimitable jeeves part 6 of 7 by pg wood if you've enjoyed this book please become a supporting member of the classic tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com you'll find many ways of supporting us starting at only $5 a month each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library please become a member today thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper